The book of Zephaniah. Here's a question for you. How long has it been since you heard a teaching on the book of Zephaniah? Or maybe the question is, how many of you have never heard a teaching on the book of Zephaniah? Yeah, a lot of you. And uh, how many of you still trying to find the book of Zephaniah as I'm talking? Yes? And some of you are looking rather proud of yourself. And, you know, we've been studying the Minor Prophets and you turned right to Zephaniah. But on closer look, how many of you will you have, how many will you admit you actually didn't turn to the book of Zephaniah at all, but Zechariah? Look again. How many of you guys going to admit? Yep, yep. A few. Okay. So turn to the left just a few pages, not to Zechariah. Looks very similar at first glance, but Zephaniah. The book of Zephaniah, it tells us in verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Do you guys know the trick of, of being able to pronunciate these names? Just do it very quickly and act confident while you do it. <laughs> but uh, that's, the, that's the trick. You don't have to pronounce it right. You just have to act like you pronounced it right. You know, and do, do a, few, a, little, you know, a few of those Hebrew type of sounds as you're doing it. And, um, but um, <clears throat> Zephaniah, his name interestingly means um, Yahweh has hidden. So we discover here that, number one, he is of the lineage of the king Hezekiah. And it was in the time, he prophesied, of Josiah. Now, right before Josiah was a very wicked kingdom in which they were wiping out the children of the king. So Josiah himself, all his brothers and stuff were killed. So he was very possibly taken. Uh, Josiah was taken and hidden in the temple by the high priest. So it's very possible that Zephaniah also, in fear, since he was related to the king, would be killed, was also taken and hidden. And that's why his name is Zephaniah. Yahweh is hidden. And, uh, but now Josiah, at eight years old, came to the throne. Uh, they killed the, the wicked queen, who had actually wasn't even from Judah. She was from Israel. It's a long story. But he now is reigning eight years old. He's really being directed by the high priest, who was a very righteous man at that time. And uh, the time Josiah got into his late teens, he started an entire national revival. And uh, that revival was very thorough. It went all the way over to where Israel was now gone, but yet they went all the way over there and tore down the high places and really established righteousness throughout the whole borders of that, that time that they had of all the land of the Jews. So outwardly, <clears throat> the people seemed to be very much following the ways of the Lord. Of course, the proof is sort of in the pudding. Almost immediately after Josiah died, they went right back to their pagan worship. But during this time, when outwardly things look like everybody's following God, yet the word of the Lord comes through Zephaniah, not of praise that things are righteous, but that things are indeed wicked and that judgment is coming. Notice in verse 2, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. 
I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests, in other words, the Jewish priests, but are really hypocrites behind the scenes and in their heart, as well as the pagan priests. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetop, so out and out, they're, they're pagan worshipers of the, um, astrology. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord. In other words, also those who seem like they're committed to God while they're in the temple, but who also serve by Melchim or Molech. But when they go home behind the scenes in their closet, they're worshiping another God. So the Bible tells us that God, when he comes to judge, is going to judge as things really are, not as they seem. There's a lot of people who have learned a religious form and they have sold their package, if you would, and convinced everyone, often even themselves, that they are living in the will of God when they really know in their hearts that they're not. That they're, they have another God. That they have another master passion. That they're really serving their own will, their own wants, their own desires, but yet part of their facade is coming to church pretending to be all oh, so committed to God with all kinds of oaths and swearing that, you know, my allegiance to God. But in reality, your heart is being called by a completely different shots, that of self-will and that which is pagan in the sight of God. And God is saying there's a time that's going to come where he's going to consume everything. Now, when we look at prophecy, often the prophecy has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is the destruction that will come from Babylon as they come down and destroy Judah. The far fulfillment is when God himself, at the end of the tribulation period, begins to destroy the earth. As a matter of fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says there that when the Lord comes as a thief in the night, that the elements will melt with a fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned. He goes on to say, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So Peter says, knowing that all things are going to be consumed, that all things are going to be destroyed, what's that speak to you on how you're to live right now? The Bible says that if the righteous are scarcely saved, <laughs> what will that say for the heathen? And so we in these last days that are being corrupted by this perverse generation need to realize that we have to stand fast in the Lord. And he says that God's going to look at things as they are. In Hebrews 4, it says that God's going to see everyone as naked and exposed before him. In other words, he's going to look right to the very core of your being and as you really are. And then also, he says in verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. Those people that once at the beginning had a walk with God, but because of the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, they've been choked out, they've been weighed down, they've backed off. They're no longer following the Lord. The Bible says there's some people on thin soil and when the sun comes out, 
they get scorched because there's no root in themselves. There's some people who don't have a true heart's commitment to God. It's a very shallow one. And when the trials and the times of testing and a deeper commitment has to be made, they themselves shrivel up and die. You can read about the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. We find that some of those churches fall into that category. And he says to repent quickly lest your name be taken out of the book of life. And so there are those people that like uh, we see in 2 Timothy 4, Demas, it says, has forsaken us having loved this present world. There's some of those people that the love of the world gets a hold of them and they just have no ability to seek the Lord any longer. They have no ability to stay in the battle, swimming upstream. But the desire for the things of the world become greater than the desire for God and eventually they have no longer the time nor the ability to continue to follow God and to seek after God. And such people who don't have that endurance to each of the seven churches in Revelation says, he who endures to the end, he who overcomes, he who perseveres shall be saved. Well, in verse 7 here of Zephaniah 1, the Lord says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. We're in a dispensation of time, and has been from the beginning, where man has his will and his desire permeating the earth. We are equal to God in that one thing, in that we have free, complete choice. We can choose to hate God. We can choose to love God. We can choose to do anything that we want. We have that ability of choice. People often ask the question, why does God allow that? Because he's given man a free choice and he won't violate that free choice. But there is a day coming when God will no longer put up with man and his choices, he's going to put his foot down, he's going to rapture the church out of here, and then he's going to, for seven years, bring the entire earth into a tribulation period. At the end of that seven years, it's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign. Satan will be released, allowing the man that have been on the earth with the Lord many up to a thousand years to once again be tested. And you think nobody would choose Satan over God. Well, you're wrong. There'll be a large percentage of people that choose to follow Satan. And there'll be that final war and then everything's going to melt with a fervent heat. And then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But at that point when God raptures the church out of here, all the earth be silent before the Lord. It's going to start being God's will on this planet. Whatever's going to happen at that point, it's by prophecy and by the purpose of God that which is going to be allowed and that which is going to be done. And God's going to put his foot down. And I love that last part of verse 7. And then he's going to invite his guest. Not just anyone's going to be on this earth, but only those he chooses. And his guest, I believe, in heaven. In Luke chapter 14, there somebody shouted out why Jesus was speaking, Blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said that it's like a, let me tell you a parable, it's like a certain man who invited dinner guests. And he told his servant, okay, the dinner's all ready, go get the people that I've invited to come to the supper. And he goes to the first man, and the man said, oh, I'd love to come, but I just bought a piece of property and I've got to go check it out. It's a pretty dumb excuse, can't wait till tomorrow. 
He goes to the next person, and he even has a lamer excuse. He said, oh, I just bought some oxen, and I've got to go try them out. Yeah, you know, better do it. They might die in 10 minutes. You know, what, what's the point? Why can't you do that the next day? Then the third one's the worst of all. The guy says, I married a wife. I can't come. <laughs> yeah, boy, you don't invite your wife to the banquet, you know. And God says there in this parable, the, the guy throwing the feast said, that's it. None of those people can come. But he says, go out into the streets and find the blind and the halt and the way to them, bring them in. And they did. And he says, there's still much room in the banquet hall. And he said, go into the highways and the byways and bring in anybody who will come. Let them come. And they filled up that house. And there the Lord in that parable ended and said, I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. So there's a lot of people who become religious and they put God into this religious box. And they think their religion is what's going to make them acceptable before God. And it won't. It's a real relationship with Jesus Christ. But yet, the Bible says that it's not the wise but the foolish of this world. It's not those people that got their act together, but it's the broken of this world. God's going to choose the foolish and the base and the broken of this world. And those are going to be the people, like the woman caught in the act of adultery. <laughs> Where are your accusers? They've all gone. Well, neither do I accuse you. It's not difficult for a person in that place to see their sinful condition. There's people that are truly weighed down by their sinfulness. They don't know about religion. All they know is I'm a sinner and I need God. And a real thing happens in their life and they become true followers of Jesus Christ. There's other people that, that just stay in their religion without really repenting of their sins, without really coming into that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says, you know what? Just let everybody shut up. I'm going to invite who I want. The kind of people that are going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb are going to be his guest. It's not going to be the religious people. There was a guy who uh, got hit by a bus and he was laying there on the corner and he was dying and the, the police officer said, is there this guy, he's Catholic, he wants his last rites. Is there any priest nearby? And a guy stepped out uh, of the crowd and said, I, I'm not a priest, but I, I live, I've been living next door to the Catholic Church for the last 50 years. And I, I know what they say every single night. And so I think I know what to do. And he leaned down by the guy and he said, Before, before, I-9, I-9, G-10. G <laughs> bingo, bingo. Anyway, ask somebody afterwards. <laughs> Well, whatever activity is going on doesn't mean you're right with God. Well, in verse 8, and, uh, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such are as clothed in foreign apparel. So they're acting like the pagan nations around them. 
And in verse 9, in the same day I'll punish those who leap over the threshold, like a, a slave who doesn't have the right to come in the front door or step on the threshold. He has to leap over. He's a servant who filled his master's house with violence and deceit. So the poor person's going to be judged because in his heart's full of as much greed and violence as the rich person. And in verse 10, And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate. That's where the rich people would sit, or the wise men of the city. And the welling from the second quarter, very rich area. The loud crashing from the hills, again, the rich area. So the rich people, in verse 10, will be judged. In verse 11, well, you inhabitants of Mictish, which is the market area. And all the merchant people that are cut down, all those who handle money are cut off. Now he's talking about the working class or the middle class people will be judged. And in verse 12, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men, notice, who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. So here, behind the scenes, when God takes His lantern and shines His light upon the hearts of men, although they act like they believe in God, really in their heart they're saying, you know what, I see no benefit in obeying God. I see no cursing in disobeying God. I see no real benefit in following the Bible. I see no real benefit in God answering prayer or not answering prayer. It seems to me the guy who tries to obey God and the guy who disobeys God they all end up in the same way. And in his heart, he does not really believe in the Lord, in his word, or in prayer. He doesn't believe, as it says in Hebrews 11:6, that God is and a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's not a reality in his heart. He goes through the motions as if he does believe in it, but in reality, he does not believe. He's complacent. Reminds me of that passage in Revelation 3 about the Laodicean church. They're neither hot nor cold. They act like they're well-dressed, but God says, my light says you're naked. They act like, oh, they see so clearly, but God says, my light looks like you're blind. You're naked and you're wretched and you're poor. And he said, come to me and get some eye salve from me to put upon your eyes. Come to me and let me clothe you. And then he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open that door, I will come into him and sup with him. And so, here the religious people of Jerusalem, in their hearts, they really have no faith. They have no reality in God. It's all just a big facade, and their hearts just full of complacency. They have no real heart for God. And in verse 13, Therefore their goods shall become booty and their houses of desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. The near fulfillment is Babylon destroying Jerusalem, Judah. But the great day, referring to the tribulation period, and it is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty men will cry out, The day is a day of wrath. A day of trouble, a distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of coldness and thick darkness, a day of trumpet alarm against the fortified city, against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. In the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured, 
but the fire of his jealousy, and he will make speedy residence of all those who dwell in the land. Now, when it talks about the Lord's wrath, what is he talking about? In Revelation chapter 6, it tells us in verse 17, it's end of verse 16 and 17, that men are crying out saying, Oh, let the rocks fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? So often people picture God in such a way that they say, oh, he's this God of kindness and love and goodness and, and there's no way he could really follow through with judgment. Oh yes, I know he threatens people with hell, but in reality he's such this chummy happy guy that he'll really not actually send anybody there. He's sort of like a lamb. You look at a lamb, it's just this one creature upon this earth that has no ability to be an aggressive animal. I mean, it doesn't really, it has teeth that it can barely chew grass. It can't growl. It can't get up on its hind legs with its claws. It can't run very fast. It's such an animal, if it falls on its side, it can't even get itself back up. And you say, well, a lamb, it's such a, a kind, gentle creature. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But here we see the wrath of the lamb, you know. We have all these creatures we sort of magnify, like Mighty Mouse, you know. He's this little mouse, but he's a big, strong mouse, can fly, and you know. But you never see Mighty Lamb, you know. Nobody would ever think of picturing a lamb as being a heroic figure, you know. But Jesus indeed is the Mighty Lamb. And he's going to come with wrath. I agree, it's not his nature, but yet he is a God of justice, and that is within his nature. And he is going to bring a tribulation and wrath upon this earth, even though many men don't think he will. The Bible makes it clear that he is going to do that. The wrath of the Lamb has come, he says in Revelation 6. Now on the same point, we see that the wrath of God is the tribulation period, and it's brought by God. But yet in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 it says, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you do. So when we as believers talk about the wrath of God and the tribulation period, Paul says it should comfort us. You say, man, it's not very comforting to me. It should be. Because we as believers, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, are not appointed to wrath. You see, we who are believers, truly following the Lord, are going to be raptured out of here before the wrath of the Lamb comes upon this earth. And if you are worried about that, you are bothered by that, the, the speech on end times bothers you, it's because God is telling you, you are not ready to meet your Maker that you are not right with God. Oh, in the imaginations of your own mind, like the Bible says, the drunkards would like to be counted along with the sober, but you know you're not. You're not submitted unto the will of God. And this is the very reason that God brings us up so many times in his word. So it can search your heart and show you that you need to be right with God before he comes. Notice in chapter 2 here of Zephaniah, Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. The Hebrew word nation is the same word, heathen. 
It's the same word for Gentiles. So come together, all you heathen. Now notice in verse 2. Before the decree is issued of the day passed like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So here is the answer. If the end times and the teachings on the end times doesn't comfort you, well, here's what you need to do right now. Before that day of rapture comes, before the anger of the Lord, before the wrath of God comes, right now, you need to come to that place to be in right relationship with God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6 that today is the day of salvation. When you hear these things, don't hear the gospel in vain. But today is the acceptable time. Now is that day of salvation. You see, people often make the mistake of saying, well, you know, I'm not really where I ought to be with God, but next week, next year, you know, I'm going to wait till I'm in my 50s and I can't have fun anymore. Then <laughs> I'll start committing my life to Christ. All these people are 50 years old. What are you talking about? You know, well, you know, you, I, I know you guys have fun, you know, once a year. Hey, Martha, is this good yogurt or what? <laughs> Only kidding. But uh, <laughs> the reality is, is you need to come to Christ when God is giving you that invitation. The Bible tells us in John 6 that nobody can come unto Jesus unless the Father draws him. So it's not, the first move is not yours. The first move is God's. And then you need to respond to that. And so if you're saying, well, I'll receive him next week, will you? God may not be extending the invitation next week. God may not be extending the invitation next year or 10 years from now. That's why the Bible says now is the acceptable time. It may not be acceptable later. The Lord sees it like a guy proposing to a gal. And there he gets on his knees and says, would you marry me? And the gal says, well, give me a little time to think about this one. You know, maybe a week, maybe a year. Let me see if I can do better than you. And if I can't, you know, hey, yeah, maybe in, a, in some time it'll work out. But I'll let you know. Well, let me tell you, that will not be an extended invitation. And here you are in your self-will, in your sin, damned to hell, and God is extending you the invitation to be pure, to be made righteous, to be prepared for heaven. And you say, you know, I want to live like a guy who's going to hell a little longer. That is something that's very scary in your own heart. That you need to repent today. Because if you can say no to God today, you'll be able to say no a whole lot easier next time. So if there is any possibility of a tug on your heart today, I would respond to that because next time you may hear a message identical to this and there's no tug at all going, oh yeah, I've heard that before. But yet there's no ability in your heart to respond in repentance to that word. And so before that time of judgment comes, there's all going to be all kinds of people at the rapture of the church going, oh, I knew about this rapture. I knew I needed to get right with God and I didn't submit myself completely to him. Well, then it'll be too late. 
Well, in verse 4, he goes on there in Zephaniah. For Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashelon desolate. Now, here in verses 4 through 7, he now is saying, and not only is there going to be judgment on Judah, but on the nations bordering it and also near it. And he first turns to the west, towards the ocean, and he says the Philistines, those people who lived along the coast of Israel, they're going to be judged. Then he turns to the east, those way out past the uh, Judean desert and then past the Dead Sea, those in Moab in the area of Jordan today, uh, they're going to be judged. And that's verses 8 and 9 and uh, 10 and 11. And then he turns towards the south to Ethiopia and says that they shall be judged. And then he turns to the north to Assyria and he says they shall be judged. And notice the heart of the Assyrians in verse 15. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, there is none besides me. Notice that phrase, I am, and there's none besides me. That is a term in the Bible that God uses for himself. And no one else can use that term unless it's blasphemy. But do you hear the blasphemous words from that area of Assyria and Babylon? That very area where our country is today, there uh, down in the Moscow area and the Nazaria area, and notice this blasphemous heart. Now, why is this an important point? Because when we look at end times, we see that there's certain things in order that need to be in order. One was Israel being a nation. And for almost 2,000 years, that seemed an impossibility. And all of a sudden, in 1948, Israel becomes a nation. 1967, there they take Jerusalem. And this is a picture that we have as we look at the end times. The Jews being a nation again, the Antichrist coming in, helping them rebuild the temple in that first three and a half year period. But yet up to 1948, it seemed like, well, the Bible must be saying else because there is no Jews, there is no Jewish nation, they're scattered throughout the world. How could that ever happen? Well, it's happened. And those who have read the Bible understand the Bible going, whoa, this is the generation the Lord comes back. What's the next thing? There's a revival of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is the area in Europe today. And we've seen that in the last less than two decades, really in the last 15 years, come together as now the European Union is coming together. Now already they have a, they have a, a currency uh, the euro coin that's already now in place. Guys, you got to realize, 18 years ago, we talked about this being a future event. There is nothing at all on the horizon saying that this even might happen. But we were saying, watch Europe. They're going to be coming together, and as they come together, they're going to start having a, an economic system. From there, it's going to be a military system. From there, it's going to be a religious system. And from, it's going to be broken down into 10. So right now it's 25 different nations, right? I'm telling you, because the Bible says it, that it's going to be broken down into 10 sections, one way or another, 10 regions. And from that, you're going to have one guy in particular come up as this great man of peace, this great world. Guy has this great wisdom, and all the world's going to look at him. From there, he's going to take over two of the other nations, three in totality, and then he's going to raise himself up. That man is going to be the Antichrist. And from there... Um, there's one more thing that as we see as we read the book of Revelation, there's an economic center, and that economic center is Babylon. 
which is the area of Iraq today. And again, for years we looked at it saying, well, maybe it's just a Babylonian system. You know, it's that spirit of Babylon that infiltrates the world. But here we are now attacking Iraq of all places. I mean, there's a lot of other places that take us off too. And, uh, you know, we're not going against North Korea or going against Iran, but it's Iraq. And now the UN is stepping up, that European Union becoming uh, very soon going to be taking over the UN. I believe they're going to have the major presence and that's going to be their military force. They're now saying, the UN is saying, hey, we want to have a hand in Iraq and rebuilding Iraq, no doubt. Because that's very possibly going to become the next world economic center. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in these next few years. By the way, that's only about 350 miles from Israel where the Antichrist is going to really focus in on helping them rebuild their temple and bringing peace to that place that seems to no way possible to bring peace amongst the Jews and the Palestinians. And so that's the spirit of the Antichrist. I will be like God. I will be as the Most High. I will be it and there will be none besides me. That's going to be that same spirit. Well, chapter 3, finishing up here this morning. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted. And particularly he's talking about Jerusalem, but it could be any city in the world, and it could be any person in the world, who to, a, to the oppressing city. So this place or this person who's polluted and oppressive, notice the four things in verse 2. She's not obeyed the voice of the Lord. She's not received correction. She's not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Ask yourself these four questions. Is there an area in your life that you know you're not obeying God today? And God is speaking to you. He's been tugging on your heartstrings. His heavy hand is coming upon you. But number two, you won't receive correction. You know God wants you to be doing a different lifestyle than you are, but you keep rebelling in your heart against His instruction. He loves you. He wants the best for you. That's why His heavy hand is upon you. But you, you're a foolish child and you won't allow Him to correct you. Number three, she's not trusted in the Lord. You're not really trusting in God. You're living life in your own will, in your own ways. As it says in Proverbs 3, you're leaning on your own understanding. You're not acknowledging the Lord and let Him direct your paths. The Bible says don't be wise in your own eyes, but yet you are. You're not trusting God with your finances or that situation at work or, or just looking at what the Bible says concerning your marriage and obeying it. But you're trying to add your own little financial savvy here and your own little psychological base of how you're going to manipulate things here. And rather than just humbly saying, this is what the Bible says, I'm going to do it. You're not trusting in Him. And then fourthly, you're not drawing near unto God. There used to be a time that you radically sought God in the Word. There used to be a time that you used to spend time in prayer. But now you have other cares, other desires, other things. And your bottom line, you're not seeking after the Lord anymore. Well, let me tell you where you're headed. Number one, you're going to become polluted. This perverse generation is going to, get, going to begin winning the battles. And you're going to start getting caught up in the lust of the world and the desires of the world. And the Bible says once the love of the world comes in your heart, the love of the Father can't dwell there. And so all of a sudden you're going to lose that love for God and that love for God's people and that love for the Word and that love for worship and, 
and all of a sudden you start replacing your Christian albums with secular albums. All of a sudden you quit listening to preaching and start listening to the talk radio. All of a sudden you, your life begins to get filled with the passions of the things of the world. And all of a sudden God starts getting squeezed out of the picture and you're no longer seeking him and you're polluted by the world and then you begin to oppress people. Because you're not in the spirit, you don't have the love and the kindness and the goodness. And so now you're griping and complaining and, and you're, you're critical and you're putting people down and you're hateful. And so now you're oppressing the people around you because you're in the flesh. You're not living a life after the spirit. What do you do? You start obeying God. You come back to that place, you're submitted to him. In verses 3 through 7, he talks about the oppression of the city of Jerusalem. And then in verse 8, he says, Therefore, wait for me. Here's the answer. Wait for me. How do you wait on the Lord? In the word, in prayer, diligently seeking after him, saying, God, what is the next thing I need to do? Give me your instruction. Wait on me, he says the Lord, until the day I arise up for plunder. My determination is to gather to the nations, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Guys, hang in there. Wait on God. Seek God. His judgment is coming. Why does God allow it? You know what? He's only allowing it a little longer. Why doesn't God judge the wicked? He is going to. Why doesn't God stop the evil? He's going to. He's waited a little while, but that time is just about up, and he will judge, and his anger will be against the wickedness of this world. In verse 9, And then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So at the end of seven years, we've been up there at this marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride of Christ has been gathered together with him at that marriage feast. Then the Lord's going to say, it's time, guys, mount up. And we all get on our horses, and we all fly out of heaven with the Lord. And there we're coming down with the Lord back to this earth. Jesus himself is going to land on the Mount of Olives, the eastern hill there next to Jerusalem. And he's going to step on it. As he steps on it, the earth is going to shake, and a big, giant cavern is going to be broken from the Dead Sea to the ocean. And then a river is going to be going through the middle of Jerusalem. He's going to stomp out the battles that are going on the earth. And then he's going to go down to the rock city of Petra as a shepherd, as a mighty man of war. He's going to bring up the Jews and other people who have submitted unto God in that tribulation period and around the world. He's going to gather them all together and have a brand new earth. And on that earth, like before the Tower of Babel, all the earth's going to have one language. But that language is going to be a pure language. You won't hear any grumbling or complaining or cursing. The earth is going to be full of praise and kindness and joyfulness. And the rod of God won't allow even one, even slightly bad word to be spoken upon this planet. And it's going to be a beautiful one language, but a pure language. And they're all going to be one accord, but not to build a tower against God, but to be in submission to God. From beyond the rivers of the Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So people will begin to come from around the world to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And in that day you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride 
and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. So all the pride and the sinful things of the world will be gone, and people will come to Jerusalem, to that holy mountain, to worship God. And notice in verse 12, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. All the people of the world will now look at the Jews for who they are, God's chosen people. And of course, these Jews that it says in Romans 9 through 11, all of Israel will be saved. There'll be people that have been humbled, been broken, been submitted. God's filled them up with his Holy Spirit, and now they themselves are a beautiful people. It's interesting that... Anywhere you go in the world today, you will find people that hate the Jews. You can go to some little peon country that has no um, racism really in it whatsoever, but they do hate the Jews. <laughs> it's because Satan is the god of this world, and he has been able to fill the hearts of the world with the hatred for that which God loves, the Jews. But in that day, God will not allow a nation to be upon this earth that doesn't see things the way God sees things, and that is the Jews as his precious people. By the way, us who are saved are adopted into the house of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isn't that great? It's always good to have more relatives, isn't it? And so now you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as your forefathers of the faith, and we also are adopted in as Jews into God's house. And uh, we're going to come back on that time, and, and they're, they're going to be able to be at peace. There's going to be no more war. There's going to be no more crime. Not even in the, in the animal kingdom. The Bible says you can look out at the field and you'll see a lion right next to a cow grazing. You'll see a bear right next to a lamb grazing. A little kid can stick his hand into a viper's hole and pull it out like you, you would an earthworm. There'll be no more poison. There'll be nothing to be afraid of in this earth. You can just go to work. You know, in this case, it's a shepherd out with his sheep. He can come home. He doesn't have to worry about anything killing his sheep or anybody stealing his sheep or anybody breaking into his house. He can just live at peace. What a glorious time that millennial reign will be. And in verse four, 14, he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. And in verse 16, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let your hands, not let your hands be weak. Now verse 17, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. The Lord your God is in your midst. Write your name next to that word, your, there. I got my name there, Brian. God's in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you. Write your name again with gladness. He will quiet you. Put your name there again with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You really are God's precious treasure. You really are the apple of his eye. And right now, as Peter said, although we don't see him, yet we love him. But in that day, we won't have to imagine it. We can look at the love spilling from the smile on his face. We don't have to imagine him loving us or, or rejoicing over us. We're going to see him as he, with a giant smile on his face, picks us up and hugs us and holds us. I miss those times when my kids were small like that, where I could just pick them up and hold them and hug them and strike, you know, 
put my hand across, through their hair and, and just rock them until they fall asleep, singing to them as I'm holding them in my arms. That's the Lord. That's what he's going to do with us. He's gonna, we're going to be his precious child. We're going to be his wonderful bride. I love that picture of the Jewish wedding feast and the way they did it in ancient times where the guy who saw the gal he wanted to marry would go and talk. Sometimes his parents would go and talk to the dad and there they would work out a dowry, you know, a cow or two, you know, throw in a basket, whatever it took. And uh, he would say, okay, you can have her as the bride. And he would go back to his house and he would begin to build a wedding chamber in his father's house. Because when a guy was married in the Jewish culture, he didn't have to go to work, didn't have to go to war, nothing. For a whole year, he just got to be on vacation and got to know his new bride. That'd be great, wouldn't it? A whole year off when he got married. Of course, it'd be hard to go back to work after that year. But And the dad was sort of the building inspector. And he'd come out and look and check into it and give suggestions. And finally, when he was just about done, little spies would go out and tell the bride, hey... It's just about done. So she would gather all the maidens together and they would just have a continual slumber party and they would all have their nice clothes on and they would have their lamps. They wouldn't turn them off. They'd just turn them down to a very low flame. And there night after night they would wait until finally the dad one day would come in quite unexpected and shake the sun and say, okay, go, about 2.30 in the morning. He'd get up and he'd tell all his guys, he brought all his groom men to, to stay there at his house while they're waiting for the father's Will and they'd say now's the time and he would get up at 2.30 in the morning whenever it was start banging pots and pans they would blow trumpets they would run through the town making all kinds of noise and of course the bride and her grooms the bride and her maids would wake up and, and, and there they would quickly turn up their lamps and all of a sudden boom through the door here comes her fiance he would grab her up and rush her through town and pots and pans and trumpets blowing and screaming and shouting and he would take her back and there they would shut the doors on the father's house and they would go in and there they would have a seven day party with just the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and and they would have a celebration at the end of that time the doors would be open and then they would have the wedding and this is exactly the picture that we see where the Lord now has his bride and his full of joy and singing and gladness as finally he looks upon the multitudes upon the earth who are in submission to him, who have a purity in their mouth, who have a heart of wanting the will and the ways of God and are walking in truth and in worship. What a day of celebration that will be. Guys, hang in there. That day is very, very soon coming. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Guys, it's worth it. It doesn't always feel worth it now to keep fighting in that battle, to keep swimming upstream, to keep climbing up that high hill to, in the will of God. But right now, to do the will of God is going to cause us pain and difficulty, and hardship, and persecution. But guys, in that day when we're looking upon the joyful face of our Lord and our Savior, our husband, Jesus Christ, and now for all of eternity to be with Him, it will be worth it.
And guys, think about it. If the rapture was to come today, seven years from now, we're back on this planet, <laughs> a brand new planet, with the Lord in a brand new Jerusalem, celebrating Him, listening to Bible studies, then He's going to take us and scatter us through the earth as priests and kings unto our God. And we will rule and reign with Christ for this thousand years upon this planet. It's worth it. Be immovable, unstoppable. Stand firm. Keep abounding in the work of the Lord. It's going to be worth it. Keep loving. Keep serving. Keep giving. Keep sacrificing. Keep obeying. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it, guys. And it's but a moment away until we're seeing Jesus Christ face to face. Jesus said, unless you lose your life in this world, you will not gain it in the life to come. Man, if I really serve the Lord, I'm going to miss out on this or miss out on that or sacrifice this or sacrifice that. Yeah, you know, you're right. But even if you live to be a hundred years old, that is only 36,520 days. Compare that to a thousand years upon this earth. Compare that to eternity, to a new heaven and a new earth. Even if you sacrifice for 36,520 days, is it really a big deal compared to eternity? It's going to be worth it, guys, to see, to be a part of that joyful time as we're singing to the Lord and God's singing over us. What a glorious day that will be. And there we see that picture further of us as Christians, as the Jews, who are God's chosen people in verse 18 through 20, finishing up. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you, to whom it reproach is a burden. So you who have sorrowed, those who have been persecuted, reproached because of living the godly life, behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame. I will gather those who are driven out. I will appoint those, appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you. I will give you fame and praise among the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. So right now we may be the downcast, the outcast, not the famous, but in that day we will come back to this earth as kings and priests and our God will be the famous on this earth. And those Jews who have made it through the tribulation period, he's going to gather them back to himself and he's going to reestablish them in the promised land. The most of the promised land the Jews have ever seen is 10%, about 30,000 square miles. But in that day, he's going to establish them in the land. All 300,000 square miles of that promised land will be given to them. Right now, they have a little less than 6% of the promised land. But in that day, they'll have it all. And God will gather them and establish them. And then all, also us as the church right now will be those kings and priests, the famous ones throughout the earth. No longer shame. No longer being persecuted. No longer being reproached. But being the blessed of this earth. It's but a short time away. Only one life soon will be passed. And only that which we've done for Christ will last. It's going to be worth it. Hang in there. And then we're going to hear very soon our husband, as it says in First Thessalonians 4, we're going to hear the shout and a trumpet blast. And all of us who are alive and those who have already passed away will all be 
coming together in the presence of God together, receiving our new bodies together, there in heaven at that marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus said, Who is that faithful servant whom the Master comes and finds him waiting for him, even in the wee hours of the morning, waiting for his Master's return? He said, I say to you, when the Master comes and sees those servants being faithful, waiting for him, he will bring them together and he will fix a mill for them. I love that. The marriage supper of the Lamb and God's going to cook it for us. And we're going to all sit down and enjoy that smile in his face and him serving us that marriage supper of the Lamb meal. Lord, we thank you for, again, your faithfulness. And we thank you, Lord, for, again, these very purging words. It's hard to hear week after week as we study through the minor prophets about your judgment and your hatred for evil and how we need to once again see to see if our hearts are right with you. But, Lord, we know it's a needful time as you turn the fire up to, to say, are you ready? Are you ready week after week? Are you right? Lord, we begin to discover after the fourth and the fifth and the sixth minor prophet that yes, God, there is a work in us that needs to be done. Lord, we need you to turn that fire up a little hotter and purge out those alloys and, and those other things that are keeping us from being that pure gold. Get rid of the dross in our life, Lord. Hone us, make us the people of God now, sanctified, set apart for your use. Cleanse us and heal us. While every head's bowed and I close this morning, there's some here today that God has called by His name. There's some of you here today that are not right with God. and Maybe a friend has invited you. Maybe you've come here on your own. But yet, you know you're not right with God and that's why your heart was tugged to be here today. Because God in His love is reaching out to you saying, I love you and I want to take away your sin. I want to take away the guilt of your sin. I want you to know the joy of being forgiven. And today the Lord wants to write your name in the book of life. And he wants to give you that place in heaven with him. There's others here today that you're the complacent ones. You've drawn back. You're not the person that you once were when you first came to Christ. The weeds have come in and choked out the life. That love of God has gone from your life. The love for His Word and worship. You're now just going through the motions. Your heart's become calloused. And God is saying before that day of wrath comes, it's your time to get ready. You've grown weary in well-doing and you're not going to reap. But you need to get back in the battle. You need to get back in the river and start swimming upstream. You need to get... Let God today heal you. The Bible says confess your sins once another. Pray for one another to be healed. And today you need to be healed. If you're here today that needs saying, I need to receive Christ. I need prayer right now, Brian. My heart is callous. I'm not right with him. I know people don't know that. I've been able to hide it pretty good. But I know in my heart that I'm not in submission to God. I'm not obeying him. But I want to get right with him today. Just lift your hands right now, saying, I want to be forgiven. I want to be healed. Lift up your hands high. Yes, a number of you today. Those who have lifted your hands this morning, there's one more step I'm going to ask, and that is to humble yourself now. Because we're going to stand up here in just a moment. I want you to come down front, and I want to pray for you and give you the opportunity 
to get some prayer with some leaders and to make that clear stand. And there's others. There was a number of you who raised your hands, but there's a number of you that still need to make this walk. The Bible says, if you'll proclaim me before men, I'll proclaim me before my Father. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he'll lift you up. And you need to make that step of humility today before your brothers and sisters. We love you. We've all been there. You need to make that step today. Let's all stand up right now. You need to make your way right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for touching hearts. Thank you, God. Get up out of your seat right now. Come on forward.